0: This is Join the Dots, the podcast about the impacts of everyday choices for our health, wallets and planet. Welcome to our new series, Demystifying Expertise. While making our regular podcast, we are connecting with experts in many fields, some familiar, some less so. In this series, we'll learn about what they do and how they see the world. Hello. In today's episode of Demystifying Expertise, I'm interviewing our co-host, or co-conspirator, Jill Duggan. Hello, Jill. Hi. Nice to see you today, Sabina. Nice to see you too. How do you define what is your field or what are your fields? Who are you? What are you?
1: Well, right now, and since June of last year, I've been Executive Director of Environmental Defence Fund Europe, and the Environmental Defence Fund is an environmental NGO that started over 50 years in the US and is now expanding into Europe. But um, over the years, I've worked for governments in the UK government, the European Commission. I've worked for think tanks. I've led business groups. And I I guess if I have an expertise, I would say it's probably thinking about the policy options in order to change the world in a better way. And I've studied in the past, I did the environmental economics master's at UCL that h uh, a also did. And I did rural environment studies as a BSc at University of London at Y College as well. So I've kind of covered a lot of ground, but I've also studied fine art. I started a an honours degree in fine art. I dropped out after a year because I was skint and I couldn't see how it would pay the rent. (laughs) Many years ago I signed up for a degree in history with Birkbeck and again I found the kind of pressure of working full-time and then working in the evening in my 20s too much so I dropped out of that. So I also started a creative writing degree and I did the first third of that which was oh, it was part time over 2 years with the university of kent but then they dropped out of that they pulled the next two modules of that so i couldn't continue that one and in between time i've done a variety of other things so you could say butterfly mind or broad experience whichever way you want to look at it
0: well, i i think that's an interesting point i think often people are told that they should follow this focused and linear path following a specific field and a career. But the sort of problems we try to address when we talk about environmental policy and management are complex and transdisciplinary.
1: How do you think your experience prepared you for what you're doing now? Back when I was 18, I was going to do a degree in economics then. Um, and the reason I didn't was I rowed with my dad about um, going out <laughs> late and whether he would pay the maintenance grant and you still got in those days. So in a way, I've kind of come full circle. I was very, very political and always campaigning in my teen years and very interested in politics in a way that my school friends thought was bizarre. I was really loved O and A level economics, so that was why I was thinking about that. So certainly been really helpful to understand that. And the environment, I think, is something that I've just become increasingly aware of, you know, from my early 20s onwards. And i made a very, very conscious decision when I went back when my daughter was little to do environment studies because I thought this was going to be an ever-present problem and that if I wanted to change my career path, that was a very sensible move in which to go because it was something that I was interested in and that there would be an increasing demand for people who understood the issues which I think has proved to be true.
0: So this is interesting you early on when you were a young person already saw the connection
1: between your political interests and economic education. Yeah, and it was really about understanding the driving force of economic thinking to to policymaking I think, you know, I suppose the characteristic that's been there all the way through is this desire to change the world for a better place. And maybe, you know, some of the early campaigns that I might have been interested in were probably based on a little bit of teenage naivety. But nevertheless, you know, that that kind of why should we put up with things? Why don't we change things? And I had three sisters and I can remember early debates with my father about why is it different for women, you know, <laughs> And why should we wait? Which I think also applies to lots of other issues as well. Is You know, there's the smashing the patriarchy. is uh, It's, it's uh, kind of part and parcel.
0: So how did you
1: actually get there? Let's talk a little about your career progression. I had a misspent youth, let's say. I was very, very easily <laughs> distracted by other things and rebellious and didn't want to accept the status quo. But I can remember my mother advising me, and I can't imagine what this advice just wouldn't happen today, uh, of becoming a secretary and working my way up from that. And given that I went to a girls' grammar school, and in that girls' grammar school, I think girls who passed the 11 plus, only about 30% in those days went on to university, which is kind of staggering now. And that's partly because fewer people went on to university anyway at that time. But I suspect if you looked at a boys' school, the proportion would have been higher. So I think it was about expectations, being on the cusp of, I think even three or four years later, that was a very, very different story and it would have had a different trajectory. I was a bit short-term-ish, I think, for a long time looking for somewhere where I could fit in. And I was deeply frustrated about my lack of progression and not being able to find a good career. And actually, there was a letter I got after applying for a job when my daughter was quite little. And I applied for a fairly menial job. I think with an organisation that found first day editions of newspapers for special events and things. And the guy, I have no idea what his name is, but he wrote back to me and said, your CV is way too long. It shows a lack of direction. You really need to sit down and think about your life. And it was it was that kind of wake up call, which was quite useful. You know, it was on the one hand, very cutting, but on the other hand, think, made me think, yeah, how do I present to people? What do I want to do? And how do I rectify that? And that led directly to me signing up to the Rural Environment Studies degree at Y college, because I wanted to change that. So
0: how old were you then? I was 40, Sabine. Oh, excellent you. I think that's a wonderful tale. When you were growing up, were there opportunities that were missed or were there simply no mentors or role models that you had access to?
1: I think there was definitely a lack of mentors and role models. And I'm thinking about, you know, my early jobs, I was a management trainee with John Lewis Partnership. And I can remember my departmental manager, Mrs. Gorman, who was horrified that I wasn't going to take up my place at university and I was going to stay at John Lewis. But as I said, I'd had a big flaming round with my father and I wanted to be independent. So she perhaps could have become a role model, but no, there weren't actually. You know, if I think back to my early roles i was always working for men women were always in a in that you know the first sort of decade of my working life were always in a support role and yeah there was a real lack of mentors yeah i hope
0: in our generation that we're doing more to provide that role the mentors and the role models to bring up the next generation yeah did you see even at the national level
1: well, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister for a while, but, you know, <laughs> okay. it's was, it was not something I empathize with. I had a job. I was a grant administrator at the London School of Economics for a while. And I think there was probably one woman academic in the department, the economics department at the time. My recollection out of probably 30 odd men. And some of them were odd. <laughs> not that we're always normal either. Some of my male bosses were very encouraging and helpful in a way, but they were not role models and they were not mentors in the way that you might want. So um,
0: what do you do on a day-to-day basis? I'd like to explore your current job, but also the job you had before this and the transition between them, because I think those are both quite fascinating.
1: So I'm in an interesting position at the moment because I was recruited and took on a role in lockdown. And so although we weren't in lockdown at the beginning of the recruitment process, by the time it ended, we were. And as I said, Environmental Defence Fund is an organisation. It's very, very well established in the United States. It's been in Europe for about just over five years. So I spend an awful lot of my day on Zoom calls And it gets particularly busy after two o'clock in the afternoon when America comes online. And so my day tends to be working with a variety of programmes. So the programmes in Environmental Defence Fund cover energy, transport, direct climate issues, ecosystems, etc. Talking about what we can do in Europe in a way that is constructive and useful and additional. And so looking for those opportunities, looking for gaps where other NGOs are not active, but also keeping up to speed with what we're already doing. And a lot of that is about raising the profile of the damaging impacts of methane to a European audience where it's come kind of second to CO2 and looking at solutions and working with my colleagues on what's appropriate here. So it's partly it's a little bit about interpreting the European environmental landscape to my American colleagues and vice versa and obviously promoting Environmental Defence Fund as an organisation that kind of likes a strong evidence base. It has its own in-house science and economics capability, and which is kind of unusual for a lot of NGOs. So it's quite interesting. And I also have colleagues in India now and in China, so I spend quite a bit of time communicating with them. So an awful lot of my role is about communicating, interpreting, developing a strategy for Europe, all of those things you do, as an executive director, and trying to get to know people under lockdown. And how does that compare to the job you had before? So I would say a lot of my roles have been about interpretation. I was doing a bit of consulting prior to this role, but prior to that, I was director of the Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group and the European Green Growth Platform. The Corporate Leaders Group is a membership organisation of progressive companies And a lot of my role there was interpreting how policymakers can use the the knowledge and and experience of companies to make better policies and how to communicate that. There are lots of different ways, but actually interacting at an early level with policymaking is going to be far more effective than presenting opinions when policy is pretty much done and dusted. And how to become that sort of credible interlocutor that is useful for policymakers. So
0: you were building an interface between industry and policy. In America, we'd probably call that lobbying. How is it different than being a lobbyist? What was the difference in the role?
1: Firstly, the industry or business group for the corporate leaders group is cross-sector. You know, they're all going to have different responses to different policies. They all see themselves as progressive on climate action and want to see more Ambitious climate action, but the way that they might interpret that ambition will be different. So there's a lot of corralling, working out for them where the useful points of support are. And I know from my government experiences, government need supportive business for contentious policy. So it's looking at where the green growth platform or the corporate leaders group can provide that support most effectively and also working with the companies to understand their different positions and why they hold them and the different impacts of policies on different sectors. Oh, fascinating. And before that, you were in government. Immediately before that, I actually went to the dark side for a little while, very deliberately, and worked for Doosan Power Systems and Doosan Babcock, which is an engineering company I think there's something like 160 companies across the world that have got Babcock in their name. So it's very, very difficult to separate them all out. But Doosan Babcock was a Korean owned engineering company, had been Scottish mostly for a long time, and basically built the equipment for power stations, including nuclear and thermal power stations. So I went in there because I wanted to understand that side of the industry. That gave me a wonderful opportunity to understand how policy was interpreted, which was a hugely important part of what I learned. I was on the executive committee of Doosan Power Systems, Doosan Babcock, in the Western Hemisphere, and it gave me access to sitting on the boards of a number of organisations alongside other thermal power companies and German boilermakers in particular. So it was incredibly useful to understand the conversations that hadn't been had with those industries where they hadn't been in the room, hadn't understood the direction, how they interpreted policy, which was fascinating to me and really made me understand that government can say things, but companies don't see this as a sort of indicator of the sense of direction, but as a sort of standalone policy. And I think it's a separate example. Understanding Dieselgate is when engineers and others look at a piece of policy as a constraint on what they're doing, rather than as part of the suite of policies leading to a particular end. So it was really helpful and I learned a lot. In the end, I did miss doing some of the more proactive climate work as well, which is the reason I went from that again to consultancy while I sort of built up my profile again within the climate world.
0: Do you see your role as trying to create a climate where future diesel gates don't happen, where we have a more
1: joined up system? I think one of the roles I see for Environmental Defence Fund in Europe in particular is joining up all these silos so that they understand the bigger consequences of policy options. I think it's inevitable, sadly, that as you tackle new problems, there will be missteps along the way. And they're often well-intentioned and enthusiastic missteps, but rolling back from them is very difficult. I think the need to get companies and others to understand where we're heading, so I think net zero ambition is great, but the net bit of it is really difficult as well, because we need companies to understand that first and foremost, you need to think how you're going to operate in a low or zero carbon world and what that means for demand for your products and how you produce them and how you supply them. One of the things that's happening in Europe that's getting less of a profile at the moment in the US and elsewhere is the need to change our consumption patterns to a more circular economy model. So I think there is a lot to learn from the missteps that Europe has made. And I think that can be very valuable to other parts of the world as they embark on this journey.
0: So do you have any thoughts on how the era of COVID can or cannot be a teachable moment? How, when facing crisis, we do and don't make changes, both what we
1: learn in trying to guide policy, but also what the public might be willing to do? Yeah, well, I think it's been fascinating. Firstly, obviously, the most immediate impact is how when the house is on fire, and that's the phrase I'm very consciously borrowing from Greta Thunberg, how when the house is visibly on fire, governments can act quickly and obviously with different effectiveness, depending on the strength of their communications and their ambition around the world, but also their circumstance. So I think that's been quite interesting. I do think it's not an accident that some of those who've been most effective have been women leaders who have given very, very clear communication and very strong direction right from the stars, the stitch in time mentality rather than seeking popularity or worrying about being stringent. So I think there are lessons to learn there. I think if you look at the climate crisis and one of the advantages, perhaps, of COVID is it's made us very conscious of the air we breathe and the changes to our lifestyle that we can make. And I think many of those will persist, I hope, into this post-COVID world. But I think it's about the shift in the way we live our lives that might have the most impact. And that, again, will be different around the world. And We see on our television screens people responding to the crisis perhaps because of the political leadership they've had in very, very different ways. And I think that there is an opportunity to rethink our lives in a way that is going to be better for all of us. Prior to COVID, I think there had been the opportunity arising of rather than looking at, for example, smart cities, to look at smart villages and new ways of living and working where we don't have to commute as much, we don't have to consume as much and where we our community can be less about our workmates all travelling into a specific point, but perhaps people that we work with on a more local basis. So I think there's huge benefits that we could learn from the COVID crisis. We could take advantage of people's willingness to adapt the way they live post-COVID and recognising that we're likely to face another pandemic in the next five to ten years that might make COVID look like a dear old cuddly friend in comparison. (laughs) Um, So I think we are at that tipping point where we can make some big changes that are going to help us move into that new world.
0: I'm interested in some of your government work Mm. since you've worked in all sectors.
1: Well, I joined... The UK government in 2001 as an elderly fast streamer. So, while I was at Y, their careers advice there had suggested that I put myself forward for the UK civil service fast stream exams, which in those days, I think the recruitment took about a year. And at the same time, because I did well in my BSc, I got funding to do a master's in environmental economics. So, I decided to do that actually. The UK government at that time when I joined had been going through the foot and mouth outbreak or you might also call it restructuring of the agricultural industry which had been an absolutely devastating impact on the agricultural sector and had forced a lot of rethink and I suspect that one of the things that has happened is I doubt whether we've ever got back to the same levels of stock intensity that we had prior to that and it also led to a lot of new policies being introduced. So I went into the civil service as a fast streamer. My first role was as assistant to the director of animal health at the tail end of the foot and mouth crisis, which was quite interesting because I got to follow him with a clipboard for a few weeks, going into very important meetings with farmers, with cabinet office and others, and learning about the way government was made and how they interacted with stakeholders Short while into that position, I did say, mm, What's the point of me? You know, how am I meant to contribute to this? Because I feel like I'm running around following you about without doing very much. And partly I was able to do that because I had been earning so little money. I'd been on a, a support grant to do my master's. And so I had very little to lose. So I think the times that you can make important decisions and be outspoken in your career is when you have very little to lose. And as a result of that, I was given a new role to assess the communications and structure of DEFRA at that time. And it was called the Duggan Review. So I was six weeks into my role and I started doing the Duggan Review, which was held up as a big success. And I moved through the ranks of my my roles very quickly to become head of illegal imports in the UK government. And I think all of that experience initially, not in my chosen line of work, which was probably, you know, I wanted to get into working on climate change. But it gave me invaluable experience as to how the UK civil service works and how it responds to events and how it initiates things. And I have to say, despite all the criticism that UK civil service attracts and much of it justified. But nevertheless, I think the smartest, most hardworking people I have ever worked with have been in government and really smart people doing really important jobs really thoughtfully, with a few exceptions, but a very few exceptions. So I come away from the civil service with a huge amount of respect for the people who work in it.
0: Would you feel that's still true now
1: or do you think some of those have fallen out or been rooted out? What I've seen in the UK civil service, and obviously I've also worked with the European Commission, some people get to a point in their career where they are frustrated in the civil service, so they have lost people, but they've also retained people. Mm. And I would still say that I have a number of friends and former colleagues working in the UK civil service who I still think of as probably the hardest working, most dedicated people that I know. You
0: worked in government, represented in Europe and North America
1: as well. I spent a lot of time for the UK government working mostly in North America because I'd been head of developing a carbon market in the UK and Europe. I went and worked with California in the Western Climate Initiative. Um, I spent a lot of time with them helping get their carbon market off the ground And advising on the pitfalls, you know, the things that we had done that we would have not done with the benefit of hindsight. And because of that work, I also got to know those who were working on the regional greenhouse gas initiative and those working in other parts of the world, in South Korea, in Australia and New Zealand on carbon pricing at that time. So I did quite a bit of that. And one of the things that I was recognised was being able to communicate deadly boring and quite complex policy issues in a way that was not streamlined, but fairly logical and straightforward so that it was easier for others to interpret. So I got quite a lot of work doing communications and and going and talking to groups and convincing them of the benefits and otherwise of various courses of action. So I was seconded into uh, working in North America and I spent a bit of time at the World Resources Institute as well, working with them and with colleagues at the embassy in Washington. So what's one way of
0: thinking or framing problems that you use that you think might work for others in the context of making choices and understanding their impacts?
1: Well, I suppose there's a few things. Firstly, what's the audience and what are their preconceived notions and where are they coming from? So the most valuable work that I have done is working in the thermal power sector to understand how they think and how government message and policy messages are interpreted which is not, the most part, it's not in the way that government and policymakers intend (laughs) at all. So I think it's really important to understand that. But nobody wants to be told what to do. So you need to put yourself in the position of the audience and think about, okay, what are the resources that they have to hand? What are their experiences? How do they think of themselves? And then try and think about policies and how that might work for them. I never went along to anybody and said, you should do what we've done. I went along and said, this is what we did. These are the bits that worked well. These are the bits that were more difficult. See if you can do something better, really, and happy to help. Finally, why this podcast? Well, Sabina, we met at a party. It was beginning to get raucous quite early on, party for (laughs) FTEC, and had a conversation about the bits of policy that work in silos and don't join up with the other bits and the information that makes us change our mind. And How do we communicate that? So I think this has grown out from that frustration that I've seen all the way through my career, even with some of the smartest and and most brilliant people, is that they don't know what's happening in another part of the woods that might impact on their decisions and on the policy options that they have before them on how they should be implemented. So I'm really keen that we continue to revise and accept where we've got things wrong and how we move forward and make sure that people have information that can contribute to good decisions. And I'm also very aware that our knowledge and our information changes all the time. So we should always be prepared to revise what we thought was true to what we have learned is is probably more true.
0: Uh, Very good philosophy. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Sabina. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com.